0: Thank you. I asked Madeline to sit beside me just when I start trembling to um, jump in. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I pronounce my name in Arabic Rana um, Ahmed. <coughs> when I speak English, I say Rana Um I. I am an artist, uh, a visual and performance artist. Have been living in Rotterdam for the past seven years or so I claim because it has been eight and a half years, but it will always be seven years that I say how long I've been staying in Holland. Uh, I've been working since um, 2011 uh, on one long term uh, project that is titled Alien Encounters. Uh, and this is anyways, the way that I work is, uh, proposing these umbrella projects under which, um, a soap opera of works or train of works, uh, is produced. Works slash conversations slash, um, uh, texts. Um, alien Encounters started in 2011, and it began with the in- incentive to think of the term alienness, where alien is on one side understood as an outcast with regard to the law, and on the other side as an extraterrestrial. So the the way that I've been, um, from the beginning of the project, uh, articulating or framing it, saying, well, the works under it function on this, or the project itself functions or operates on this conjunction between the legal and the spatial, which everything operates on that conjunction, but somehow that was my trick to contain the project um, thematically, let's say. Alien Encounters starts with um, the point of departure, uh, which is the film of Sanra, Space is the Place, which you're going to be seeing in a bit. And Sanra was an African-American jazz musician. He's very dead right now. Uh, And he, (laughs) Uh, after his European tour with his uh, band, which is called the Intergalactic Orchestra, but it was called different names uh, throughout their uh, career, which is still ongoing, by the way. um, He claims that he disappeared and that he reappeared in his film Uh, which he made in 1974, titled Space is the Place. And that in this time of his disappearance, he found himself on on another planet. And that he came in 1974, in his film, back to the United States, where he comes from, to recruit African-Americans in order to take them and settle them on that other planet. I'm going to uh give you a teaser a bit uh because although the work um or two moments in his work are foundational for alien encounters um so I'm going to be uh, uh asking David to just play one uh, uh, uh the first excerpt from the from the film and I will be telling about it but just to give you a bit of a uh Entertainment before I go about it, but I'll get out of the way.
1: While we're setting this up, Rana, do you want to just explain, just um, set up this this film and its its place in film history, its significance? No, <laughs> no,
0: no. Um, it is important for me to. It's not the film itself that is foundational for my project. It is those two moments in the film, and I want to insist on that and to go from these moments and what they propose. Because we're go- there's a long way home uh, till till we get to the sleepwalkers, and I think that there's a hell of a lot of um, directions to go, but. In this um, clip that we're going to be seeing now, um, Sanra enters a youth center. Um, so with his he appears with his moon shoes and with his eccentric being. And a girl asks him, Well, but how can we know that you are for real? Um, on the margin, David. Uh, do you mind if, since I'm saying it anyways, you can play the very la- without the first section, just the last, last scene, when I, when I say, let's, let's go for that. Okay? Thank you. So, um, not here, like before. So, he asks, uh, she asks him, well, but how can we know that you are for real? And he says, well, you know what, I'm not real, I'm just like you. You're not real. If you were, you'd have a status among the nations of the world, so we are both myths. So basically, Sanra is saying to her you know what? If it has been imposed upon us throughout history that we are uh, not real, then fuck the real. If it has been imposed upon us that we are the myth, Let's figure out what would it mean, actually, to even seize this position of being or becoming the myth, and exaggerating it. Uh, The last, The Farewell Earth, um, which is the last scene in the film... When, this, when, sunri- when the spaceship is going to take blackness towards outer space. The moment that this spaceship reaches outer space is the moment when planet Earth is destroyed. And this is the moment where alien encounters somehow uh, starts um, with the propositions and claims that I make. In the sense that I say, well, I claim that what Sanra is proposing, and possibly he would be turning in his grave, that the moment that those who were alien with regard to the law, and the law here is used really loosely, because it, it um, of course, it's it's about being alien with regard to the entire history of s- slavery. Uh, the entire discourses of geography, and uh, uh, but those who are uh, who were seen as alien with regard to the law, the moment that they become became literal aliens, as in extraterrestrials, because the spaceship flew or reached outer space, was particularly the moment where they were disburdened from their alienness, because we see that planet Earth was destroyed. And there were, they were, there was nothing to be alien towards anymore. So as if Sanra is saying, could it be possible that through literalizing one's own alienness, that this could be a possible route for disburdening, disburdening oneself from this alienness? And as if Sanra is answering, to somebody else who I have been uh, very much looking into in my work, um, who is Deepesh Chakrabarti, who is a Bengali historian and uh, a prominent figure in um, subaltern and postcolonial studies, who wrote a book in the year 2000 called um, Provincializing Europe, where Chakrabarty says, well, you know what? Europe is not uh, this geographic entity that is called today Europe, but Europe is this, um, is whatever, uh, is all these discourses that find their genealogy in uh, this history of expansion, imperial uh, and colonial expansion. And to him, uh, provincializing uh, Europe does not mean to kill those discourses, but rather it's a practice of situating those discourses. So it is as if Sanra is responding actually anachronistically to Deepesh Chakrabarti and saying, well, you know what, to me it's not about the question of provincializing Europe, but it's the question of provincializing planet Earth itself planet Earth as the, uh, other than as the, the uh, center of gravity, let's say, or as the, um, uh, the ground uh, in relation to which, I'm trying to, to measure my English here in relation to which uh, all these discourses, philosophical, historical, geographic uh, discourses, are measured.
1: Mm. Because there's, there's so many... What, what We're really excited to have you talking about your work because there's a lot of um, rich layers to it. And I, uh, some of the, the things that I've picked up in what you were, you're talking about is there's sort of modernity, colonialism futurism there's um, the legal is very important how do you constitute a a legal subject seems very important to your work Um, and then there's this also this other thing which is theater and uh, I think I've read you've said you know that this how do you um, can can law be extracted by the sort of theater of humanity and I feel like these, these things are all kind of tied up in, in Space is the Place, and they're all kind of tied up in uh, The Sleepwalkers as well. Could you sort of explain a bit more about the legal, the theatrical, um, and, and this idea of, um, of futurism that, that Space is the Place brings in? I think
0: if I respond immediately to this, it will be a short circuit. But we're getting there. Um, What I'm saying, bringing uh, space as the place and why I'm making a start with this is just simply to begin with a premise from where where Alien Encounters starts and not only where it starts, what kind of propositions that I began with St- and that the different works where somehow have been uh, discussing that premise and trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, but it is important to say that uh, the main, why the hell alien? Why? And to me, it has always been, uh, I've been, I, I come from Lebanon. Um, it's been troubling, troubling, um, of course, since the beginning of the Syrian, I will still somehow call it revolution, the Syrian revolution. There has been kind of, um, for decades now, some sort of... Um, a no exit where there's no possibility to, through language um, or discursively, to be thinking and articulating the history of violence and the present tense of violence and the intensity of violence, but not only that, also our responses to that violence. And in a way through beginning with, through starting with the, with, um, with the premise of what would happen if we're thinking of literalizing one's own alienness, becoming the myth rather than becoming the, r- the, the real, where would this, um, what kind of political discourse or conversation would this open? However, um, it has been incredibly difficult because of the lack of language to sit there and say, well, let us start, begin with Syria. Let us talk about the history. And that's where the, the very first um, uh, works within alien encounters started with actually encounters with uh, undocumented Uh, immigrants that I uh, met in Marseille by chance and that I uh, set a conversation with in 2011 on board of an inflatable boat in the sea, where this conversation opened up beginning with uh, of course, it, w- it it was a kind of an anecdotal conversation, nothing like hyper um, uh, theoretical, but it opened up a million doors regarding these relations of land, sea, and outer space, uh, regarding the question of how to constitute oneself as a legal subject outside ground on a boat, that is, on a wobbly boat in water, and thinking therefore through the materiality of water, wh- how, what does it mean to be, um, uh, to constitute oneself as a legal subject from non-ground, through th- from the p- coming from the premise or the propo- proposition that I'm making uh, regarding Sanra's uh, last scene but it opened up a huge explosion of ideas regarding where th- they came from the uh, the mining town in Mauritania that they came from the f- that was built by the French in early uh, 60s as a settlement for the upper management uh, European upper management of the French company and how it now has been turning into a passage But this somehow, uh, as a beginning, as a first work, um, where I'm borrowing stories from somewhere else, borrowing narratives and terms from somewhere else, wasn't enough. So there started, and this is where, uh, there started the, the thinking through, OK, how to go further, and instead of the narrative, I started to work with certain terminologies. Particularly, at that time, I was asked by a... Uh, I never speak in this anecdotal way like, about my work, but uh, because I don't do artist talks normally, but uh, please let me know when, when I become too anecdotal to stop. But um, I was asked by a journal, a German journal, to, uh, to, to write an essay about responding to the question, how can we resist today? And that was a very problematic um, question to me. Especially that my we is not your we. My today is not necessarily your today. My connotation of the term to resist is not necessarily what you attach to that term. Why do you think that I, if I'm an artist who is working, uh, trying to to think through and propose within a certain political context, uh, some confrontational... um, questions. Why would we assume that I am interested in the question of resistance in that particular sense? So that was the moment when, and the context of that question comes particularly from the fact that in Lebanon, the term resistance has acquired um, a very particular sense, because today when you ask somebody, are you with or against the resistance, you are asking them explicitly, are you with or against Hezbollah? And Hezbollah is a political party in Lebanon that uh, started in the, sort of, was young and uh, in the early 80s. And that with the end of the civil war in Lebanon, the way that the Civil War ended was through this uh, big meeting, regional meeting, I'll just give some some context regional meeting that said, well you know you all all of you warlords can just now here's the cheese that you can cut and uh, the resistance that was in the hands of the, communist uh, party, the Marxists, different leftist um, uh, fractions within the Lebanese context. They are liquidated and we we will put uh, uh, the force of resistance, military resistance in particular, against Israeli occupation of the uh, south of Lebanon in the hands of one uh, political party That is the Shiite uh, Hezbollah party. Uh, Which of course uh, caused the huge influx towards Hezbollah from the entire uh, southern part of Lebanon because that was the only space where villagers could uh, take part in the military resistance against the Israeli occupation. But today, Resistance has become an institution, an institution of power that perpetuates the power of the state. And in a way, other than the context of where, uh, uh, how resistance and the history of resistance has been appropriated, I wanted to think particularly through the, the concept of resistance. So there was the other work where starting with uh, thinking through um, sort of allegorically through the the plague of Athens that happened in the year 430 BC where one third of the population died from the plague but the way that the plague was uh, was historicized by the uh, historian Thucydides, who was at the time of the plague, it was historicized as a legal uh, illness and not only as a somatic Ill- illness. And why it was uh, characterized as a legal plague? Simply because the people who were still alive thought, you know, thought we're not going to live long enough to be taken to court for any offense that we make. This is on one side. And on the other side, anyways, those gods that we, that we uh, uh, you know, what's the English word, pray for or uh, worship, they are not taking the disaster out of our way. So it's a lose-lose situation on either side, the law of the gods and the law of the state. So there was some sort of a general apathy towards the law. And part of that general apathy towards the law was that women, uh, there was this, this kind of uh, transient liberation of women in Athenian terms, where uh, possibly uh, women uh, finally could step out of the door or fall in love and so the state, the, the response of the state to this to the to this uh, situation, to this legal apathy, was to make create a magistrate, a legal mas- magistrate, to contain and control the bodies of women. This is one example, for instance, where through that, were the kind of um, uh, start. I started thinking through the term resistance from a biomedical uh, lexicon, thinking of the state as uh, of the of the methods of immunization that the state uh, devices and the methods of hygienification, uh, not only of public space but hygienification of its of the. Institutions and the institutions, in general, where somehow the state was, in in a from a biomedical, uh, in biomedical terms, resisting that uh, infection that women became, the plague that women managed to become, because women, in that sense, not only were seen as the weaker souls that were. Uh, or the weaker bodies that could propagate the plague, but the weaker souls that propagated the plague of apathy. So in a way, this, uh, these terms of resistance, uh, hygiene and immunity, and particularly resistance, uh, became somehow a counter-performative uh, Um, and uh, counter-revolutionary, let's say, um, uh, force. Particularly counter-performative, just to say, on the other side, if I was working with terms such as resistance, hygiene, and immunity, on the other side, I was working with terms such as contagion, the plague, and infection, and to infect etymologically means to perform into something. And this is particularly where the relations of uh, uh, infection and performance started to develop.
1: Um, Uh, Just thinking about um, this idea of resistance and the plague, makes me think, uh, when we look at the work The Sleepwalkers, about um, how often it seems your work centers on these uh, states of crises. It might be political unrest or you know, um, epidemics. Um, or it might be, in the case of um, Rhea and Sakina, the, the subjects of The Sleepwalkers, it's a sort of great moral panic. Can you talk about why why you might be attracted to these crises and, and how they play out in your work? I will again
0: take the long route. <laughs> I'll begin actually, I'll get to that. But I will begin with the claim that I make about justice theater, right? So let us look at justice as the extent to which one can access theater or the dramatic means of representation, the measure to which one can access theater. That was the claim made somehow in one, in the third act, in one of the previous, previous works. Where I'm, I've been proposing that, well, let's not look at justice as the opposite of injustice. But if I'm thinking through the term theater, coming from that genealogy of of thoughts, and the the term theater becoming sort of the terrain of power. So if I want to think about it in terms of, let's say, simplistic Syrian uh, example, I would say, well, what is the struggle that the Syrian People, uh, what is the struggle? And in my, in in the in terms of of what this project is trying to establish is to ask this question. I would say, well, the struggle perhaps is the struggle to access theater, theater that is monopolized by state institutions. and and not only state institutions, the institutions of power in general. This is in simplistic terms. So if I'm thinking of the term justice as the measure to which one can access the dramatic means of representation, so like in a a courtroom, the access in, in a show trial, it is the state that has access to those dramatic means of representation Right, where the convict does not have access. So if justice is the measure to which one can access those dramatic means of representation, this means that justice is somehow the measure to which one can access power. However, what I like getting back to the Sanra Ra moment of, of provincializing planet Earth, in order to, to claim theater, this claim and to access theater has to be conditioned by a continuous or perpetual gesture of provincializing theater. So it is conditioned by leaving theater perpetually because otherwise we become other Bashar lessons. getting to the the thing of crisis i think what what makes me do what i'm doing is the search for for a language to it's simply like i can i can i'm even shy to say it, because I can say from, from like, I can ev- either answer from my own uh, nightmares at night as a person, but I can also have my big, you know, other kind of answers. But um, with Reya and Sakina, uh, this film, this work is not about the two sisters. So I'll just give a, a, a very quick, uh, a very quick thing about the film. From the claim that, well, let us see what would it mean to think of justice as the measure to which one can access theater. Um, so the film is about theater. Is a question about what th- what does that claim mean. Although this claim I have already uh, uh, started to work with, with a previous work, which, is, which I would like to say a couple of words ab- after uh, the, uh, the Sleepwalkers about. Um, so the work is not about uh, these two sisters that uh, were the first uh, women to be ever executed by a court of law uh, in the history of Egypt, but it is through them. But it's and it's about theater, so I call it a film-play because it's a theatrical work, uh, or it's a film that has to be seen from the history of theater rather than than from the history of film. Um, Raya and Sakina were figures that were, um, they killed or they were said to have killed 17 uh, sex workers. Uh, The two sisters, their husbands and other male accomplices uh, are said to have been like the gang, but they had this brothel where these sex workers worked. So basically they killed their friends. But they killed them, that was at the time, immediately after First World War, where there was incredible uh, hunger, incredible poverty uh, in Egypt, especially that the British uh, were taking at the time all the resources to the, to the British army. Andrea and Sakina were immigrants that came from rural Egypt into uh, metropolitan Alexandria, uh, they were incredibly poor and they would kill uh, their friend for a coat or for a bracelet that would, have, would be the, her life savings on her body. And then they would stuff her body under the tiles of their bed or the kitchen. Um, one of the accounts on the investigations with the, with the two women is an account, a journalistic account by, a, by an American journalist, very populist, who writes uh, from a very, I will say the trio, white colonial asshole-ish tone about the, about the investigation. And he was at the time in 1920 and 21 in Egypt. But at some point in his, in his account on the story, he is the, f- the only one that tells how the police drew the confession from the sisters. And he explains that what the police did was to introduce to their cell a whirling trickster, uh, somebody who would come and whirl and whirl in front of them in such a way that he would put them in a, in a condition of psychedelia and delirium. He took uh, a piece of evidence from under his robe, threw it in front of them. The sisters think it's fate. They confess, end of story. And it is particularly this hyper theatrical uh, moment or device that the state uses in order to coerce them uh, into confession. The sisters, so so much has been written and um, about the sisters, and um, they have become within since 1921, since their execution, they have become sort of the epitome of female monstrosity. They are cons- they are seen in within the Arab uh, mass culture as the female version of the vampire, and any kind of—or this is my my own uh, projection upon this—is that any any kind of dissent uh, against the state, uh, there's this projection upon any form of dissent of the of the of the image of these two sisters, where. Descent is pure evil, and these sisters are the representation of pure evil. Um, Of course, the story cannot be understood without the colonial, uh, the British uh, uh, um, role in Egypt uh, at the time. Um, Funny, I'm finding myself as I'm talking about the film, so I will go on. And then I talk about why this, about something else. But there is a moment in the film that, uh, I don't know if if all of you have seen it, but there's the lips where they are this intense uh, text, uh, which comes from, which is actually a transcript from Jamal Abdel Nasser's speech in 1956. Jamal Abdel Nasser was Egypt's um, president, and is considered sort of the uh, the guy who uh, said bye-bye to the British. <laughs> I'm trying to, <laughs> to find my English words. Who ousted the British. And... Uh, in 1956, he uh, deci- he, wa- he uh, nationalized the Suez Canal, and in response to that, the Israeli, British, and uh, French armies bombarded the city of Port Said. And uh, the British newspapers started to write about Abdel nasser that he, you know, he's a he's a dog, he's a son of a bitch. And he goes in public in 1956 and makes this speech in front of thousands of people in in Port Said. He says, you know, we are now independent, we are now strong. Um, You want to say about Jamal Abdel Nasser that he's a dog, we tell you you are the sons of 60 dogs. You want to say that I'm a son of a bitch, I tell you you are the sons of 60 bitches. You you think that we can't get dirty and nasty? Well, we can. Let us remind you what we've written on the walls of portside, and all the public starts laughing. He says, "Remind us what have we what have we all written on the walls of portside? Your king is a what?" And everybody answers, "A woman." In a way, this um, official. Uh, anti-colonial rhetoric, how it perpetuates the colonial structures um, of gendering the nation and of gendering the justice system as well. But there's also a moment in the film where, um, but this this very much in relation to how, although it's not there existing in the film, but it is somehow part of why the film exists this relationship between the the killers and the female killers and their uh, their uh, victims where Reya and Sakina were because of their deep poverty and because they were even below the lowest of, of lower class because they were immigrants as well internal immigrants so on one side, you can see them as the victims of the state, but they are not victims enough because they were killers. But their victims, the, the sex workers, were also seen not victims enough because they were considered as responsible for their own killing because they are prostitutes. So this relationship between the not, ki- not victims enough and not perpetrators enough. Where, and this, this thing about Raya and Sakina, acknowledging and seeing that through killing those sex workers who anyways didn't have families to look for them. So nor the state is going to really care if sex workers are dead. Acknowledging the vulnerability and the fragility of women uh, in, in this situation
1: you've said that they were viewed as these female monsters. And um, I was hoping you could explain something for me, because something I, I read was that these women, and, and women more broadly in Egypt, were seen as these um, sexual predators in a way. And uh, the the view was that that women had this sexuality that could not be contained. And that really surprised me, because I you know that the sort of reasoning for women to be veiled was not so that men whose sexuality could not be contained you know were were given some kind of relief it was actually that women's sexuality could not be contained and this was a way to to prevent that could you explain that the perception of women at, at at this time in Egypt
0: well i don't claim to be an expert but um on one hand, uh, what uh, what was Egypt identifies itself as a as a female, as a virgin, virtuous female, as a mother, and anything that is outside that is the work of uh, colonialism. Women that worked as sex workers uh this is what uh what was seen as the result of uh moral decadence coming from uh, uh, coming from the colonial um. so in a way the um, it is quite important to, to, open, to open this very paradoxical relationship to the colonial past slash present because it's still ongoing. What, getting back to Syria, bec- to, to the Syrian context, because simply today, Syria, the Syrian regime, calls itself somehow semi-officially as the last fortress of resistance and defiance in the world. Resistance and defiance on one hand against uh, uh, Israeli uh, fascism and against imperial, global imperialism. So the Al-Ba'ath regime, and Al-Ba'ath means resurrection, in Arabic, the resurrection of the pure Arab self that was not contaminated by the colonial identification of the Arab self. So al-Ba'ath regime, the history, uh, the, the way it identifies itself they is that it is the last fortress of resistance and defiance there's a lot of but bloodletting is the premise of the politics of hygiene there's a lot there is this use of the of the term of the bloodletting machine a blood which i used actually the actual machine that was uh, engineered in the uh, 12th century by al-jazari who engineered an automaton of bloodletting. That's something that purifies and hygienifies the blood. But bloodletting in this sense, I'm talking particularly about all the killings, all the, the sort of fascist idea of, of
1: hygiene through, through
0: warfare. <laughs> but bloodletting is the premise of the politics of hygiene, and in a way it is very explicitly said that, well, all of you who we happen to be bombing and killing haven't learned enough from us how to resist illness, how to resist the plague, how to resist contagion. Of course, within the entire, like, when Gaddafi uh, uh, made his last speeches on television and he asked the public, who are you? when people were demonstrating in the streets and nobody ever answered because they were demonstrating, stating the obvious. But then he goes on television again. He says, you know what? I know who you are. You are 17-year-old juveniles. You are being given hallucinatory drugs in your milk, in your coffee, in your drinks, and in your Nescafe. And Uh, So I call upon the parents to pick their kids off the street now remembering the plague of Athens. Women also were seen as juveniles. Nobody picks their kids off the streets because they were on the streets themselves. He goes and in his last speech on television he says, you know what, I know who you are, you are rats. You are rats propagating the plague. So in a way, this entire, but also in Egypt today, there's this entire rhetoric of hygienifying public space, immunifying the state, uh, blocking all the porousness uh, because uh, we are an ill, Uh, we risk illness. But immunity also, we should not forget that immunity is a term that is also a legal term because he who is immune is who is exempt from risk towards publicness. So, um, justice as the extent to which one can access theater when I decided that I wanted to get back to Lebanon and Syria. And that is, the, that is the predecessor of the sleepwalkers. And this, I would like to say a couple of sentences about it because it would clarify a bit uh, where I'm coming from in terms of this relation to theatre. Is I decided at some point that, okay, I've been doing all these detours going through outer space, and sea, and mining, and islands. And and now it's time to get back to Syria and Lebanon. And I decided, since this claim about justice and theater, I wanted to look into a very particular theatrical uh, phenomenon, which is not, not only particular for Lebanon at all. It is, it is particularly Shiite. Um, phenomenon. So in Islam there's Shia, there's Sunnah, there's a million other. But since Hezbollah that I just spoke about, the institution of resistance, is a Shiite, comes from a Shiite ideology. A Shiite ideology that, uh, that comes from the time when the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, who is called al Hussein. Hussein was unjustly killed. So, in a ten-day battle, Hussein and another guy were fighting for uh, who would be ruling. Uh, let's say it wasn't called the Islamic world, but let's call it like that for the lack of a different. Uh, so, Hussein and his family were. In, on one side, and thousands of an army of thousands was on on the other side, and Hussein and his family were brutally killed, unjustly killed, and this is the moment. The recognition of this unjust killing that started the entire uh, Shiite, um, um, let's say, ideology. Hussein is not, and this is my claim is not seen as only as a person, but also as a a linguistic substitution to the ultimate figure of the oppressed. So the killing of Hussein is a paradoxical uh, event because for the oppressed to exist in language, somebody, some first oppressed had to be oppressed. So al Hussein had to be killed. But the killing of Hussein means explicitly erasing the oppressed from language. So it is this paradox, Shi'ism is based on this paradox of gaining access to language and being denied access to language, language slash representation. And therefore, we're talking here gaining access, so, so it is based on the relations of Uh, uh, representation and legality. And what happens in this uh, theatrical phenomenon is that each year there are these 10 days that uh, are the commemoration of the killing of the 10 days battle. There's a pop-up theater that uh, pops up in the middle of the street. This is Ashura. Yeah, this is Ashura. An orator plays the role of an actor. And all the neighbors that go down to to this theater play the role of the audience. The orator starts narrating, orating, singing all the like um, the story day by day in a very Brechtian manner. So he would be like, and Hussein die or whatever. But yesterday, actually, my little three-year-old kid told me this and that. So it would be like this sudden moment of being in the in the crying and tears like mm-hmm. pouring, and then all of a sudden, it's a it's a story of. Uh... So there's this Brechtian orator, and there's this audience that is playing the role of an audience, uh, in the sense that their role is to sit and weep, is to sit and cry. What happens is that through narration, uh, the audience starts witnessing the battle. But then through the change of accent, because the orator changes his accent towards a Iraqi accent, they are transformed or transported towards the space of the battle. But then because everybody starts beating their chests, they enter a, a trance a situation of trance, where they become part of the battle. But then there's the moment when everybody starts uh, um, self-flagellation, so cutting their foreheads, blood all over the place. So this witnessing turns from a theatrical witnessing towards an actual witnessing. And this back and forth between the theatrical form of witnessing and the actual form of witnessing, this back and forth between embodying the hand of the oppressor and the body of the oppressed at once, is what constitutes this audience or this community of people, constitutes them as testimonial subjects in the place Outside the court of law. So the question that in my the shift in my work, if in the beginning I was thinking or questioning what does it mean to constitute oneself as a legal subject outside the paradigm of ground or planet Earth, shifted today towards what does it mean to constitute oneself as a testimonial subject in the place of the legal subject. So basically ditching legal subjectivity altogether and thinking, what does it, what does it mean to become a testimonial subject politically? And this is where Rayen, it is f- through these thoughts that the, the sleepwalkers started, particularly also to, from, from, that, from that shift in the question. So The Sleepwalkers does not ask... I, I do not at, at any instant... The, the story is totally evacuated from the film. There is no story in the film. Uh, the story is there in the, in the glossary, in m- me telling you about it, but it's not in the film. In the film, there is nobody at, at no instance that I would suggest that Ray and Sakina are the protagonists, and the state and the colonizer are the antagonists. It's a film. It's it's for me it, an exercise in writing a tragedy that has no protagonists. Everybody is an antagonist. Everybody is evil, evil, evil. But trying to figure out what the what what this relationship of power between them what is, and in what sense, so in a way I'm not bringing, I'm not um, uh, trying to uh, bring back Ray and Sakina and do them justice, particularly because there is a recent claim by a journalist that I do not necessarily trust in Egypt that is saying Raya and Sakina were never serial killers. They were actually fighters against the British. And they were wrongly, uh, or un- purposefully, but wrongly convicted just to get rid of them. And the only person who had evidence, who was the little daughter of uh, uh, one of the sisters who was put in an in a orphanage, two years later the orphanage caught fire and the, and the daughter was dead. So there was nobody left to tell. So, But knowing this, the question is not bringing justice to those two women, but rather uh, through looking at them now because the film looks at them now, What, what they are doing now. They are in this space of limbo. They are in this space of the undead and it is in the, in the interest of the state, slash in the interest of the whirling man, to keep them undead, to always return and return to their prison cell, uh, and promise them the moment they might think that they are dead, to, to, because their death is conditioned by their acknowledgement of their death. So the moment they think that they might have died, just to come and assure them that he managed to postpone their execution. So they are still waiting for their execution. They don't know that they are dead. And it is always that in the interest of the state to keep them undead.
1: I might just ask one quick final question before we open it up to everyone else to ask questions. this Alien Encounters project, so this Sleepwalkers is one chapter of many as part of that project. Um, you've approached it in so many different ways and I think that's something that's very notable uh, Notable about your work is the different um, approaches that you've made, that you, made. you we were talking about Ashura before, you made a work which was this eight channel um, audio, what was it? Sound An play. opera, a sound play. Yeah, and play that's right and um, and I think some of the the archival material that you'll see in, in the work here has been presented in other forms previously. Um, can you just briefly explain the way you approached this work? You made this this film with the support of Nottingham Contemporary, uh, how you approached it and, and what the other elements are and, and how they all relate together?
0: Um, so the history of the commission, in short, the showroom uh, in invited me to uh, to make a work, and I knew I wanted to. This is my first film ever, and um, and they partnered with Nottingham Contemporary and with IMA uh, to make this work happen. Um, but of course, the the way that it is. Uh, shown in each um, space has been uh, particular also to the to the to the place to this to the place where they where this work is being shown uh, at Nottingham contemporary because the film was filmed in the space in the multifunctional theater space that's also sometimes a, a wedding uh, place. Um, it was filmed in Notting- at Nottingham contemporary. The scenography is in itself a work that has is is part of the, of course it is uh, part of the film but it is it has a similar status to the image and as well a similar status to the sound because I consider image and sound and uh, they are not one thing they are two. Um, there are there's the big uh, backdrop. I was looking very much. At Russian constructivist stage sets, Russian constructivism or const- constructivist um, theater makers, they refused the entire idea of the back of the traditional backdrop because that was the moment of representation uh, of the social rather than the reconstitution of the social, and what. What those, what the Russian constructivists did in in theater was particularly to re choreograph uh, rather than represent, re choreograph the relations uh, of the actors, uh, the the scenography, the um, the te- the script, um, uh, and in a way re choreograph. Uh, the social, their social significance and political significance. So I was very much taking this as my cue, let's say, as my aesthetic cue for uh, for structuring the, the work, the film. So I decided to actually work with the traditional backdrop and uh, the three panels that are actually like the layering, which is in traditional theatre, but the imagery itself that is on the backdrop are quotes visual quotes from uh from stage sets um so f- for instance there's a lot of quotes from alexandra Exter, who was a uh, stage set designer russian constructivist uh, stage set designer uh, but also there are like uh, the backdrop w- all all these um, these elements that are in the image—they are the spaces that the characters inhabit. So there is the the space of theater. There is the um, um, there is a soldier. You see a uh, um, uh, the space of the court. Um, you see the there is a. Um, hygiene school, the school of hygiene that was built by the French in Algeria in 1957. It's also part of, uh, because once again, terms of hygiene, um, bloodletting, there's the bloodletting machine. Um, And the three panels, uh, they were the, they framed somehow because the scenes uh, they would frame the scene because each of them is, uh, if, the, if there are three pillars of characters, so there are the, the killers, the, fem- the the killers, there's the state, the colonizer. But I don't like to talk about this because it's my logic. It's not, um, but in the scenes, they existed uh, as somehow the, uh, the subtitle of the scene a visual subtitle. Um, but the way that the film was edited was very much, there's a lot going on in there. So like if I, I don't want to, but the way I was editing was, um, you see that there, it is looking at the relationships of, of the characters, um, but sound wise, it's very much edited like a musical. So there's the, there the Foley who is the conductor that gives the cue, their choir. Uh, They are the libretto that is, uh, and part of the libretto actually, uh, uh, the moment when the whirling trickster comes to Raya and Sakina in in prison and she asks him, "Uh, I'm surprised that the prison cell is, uh, prison guard is willing to admit you. He says, I've I've done him a favor, Uh, something like that. This is actually the transcript from, um, or uh, quoting uh, Plato's Crito dialogue, where Crito comes to Socrates uh, in prison at dawn, at the break of dawn to convince him to run away. And, uh, but Socrates makes this logical argument of why it is not just to run away so in a way i'm quo- I'm not quoting as much as also it's commenting uh, on that. So there's it's it's a heavily coded visually and and sound wise and um, in terms of the text, coded in terms of the genealogy of my own work uh, but also coded in terms of the relations. Of power, of who gives the cu- the cue to who. So there's th- there's these two women who at one moment in the circus scene appear as the assistants of the whirling man, but then uh, uh, there's the the circus uh, ringmaster that is in control of the whirling man and the sisters and the, of all the characters in the play. So it's a play in a play in a play. It's a play in a circus, basically. So, but who is giving the cue to the ringmaster? It's the Foley. But who is giving the cue, but the Foley at one moment becomes an actor in the play. But then the actor is being watched by an audience, a white uh, audience, well-dressed. But then the audience at one time uh, stop being there uh, the actors of, of of the audience. So remembering the Ashura story. Because all these are intertwined in a way. The, there are affects that are taken from one thing to another and uh, transported somehow. Uh, just because simply I'm discussing I'm discussing one thing. I'm discussing theatre, but this time I needed to discuss it outside to zoom out from Syria and Lebanon and to discuss it this time from a queer slash feminist through queer feminist questions. uh, Through questions that are related to the history of the gendering of the justice system and the gendering of the nation. So it's kind of, to me, I was saying it's like a huge salad of thoughts huge salad of thoughts. yeah huge <laughs> tabouleh salad of thoughts but that has to work on an affective level because it, it's not that people are supposed to be uh sitting and decoding uh, what i'm saying as much as just being in the film that's why the the scale of the of the image is so big because you're not there to sit and watch, you're there to sit and be.